Chapter Five of She and Alan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. She and Alan by H. Ryder Haggard. Chapter Five. Ines. We had sighted the house from far away shortly after sunrise, and by midday we were there. As we approached, I saw that it stood almost immediately beneath two great baobab trees, babian trees we call them in South Africa, perhaps because monkeys eat their fruit. It was a thatched house with whitewashed walls and a stoop or veranda around it, apparently of the ordinary Dutch type. Moreover, beyond it, at a little distance, were other houses, or rather shanties, with wagon-sheds, etc., and beyond, and mixed up with these, a number of native huts. Further on were considerable fields, green with springing corn. Also we saw herds of cattle grazing on the slopes. Evidently our white man was rich. Umslopogas surveyed the place with a soldier's eye, and said to me, this must be a peaceful country, Makumasan, where no attack is feared, since of defence I see none. Yes, I answered. Why not? With a wilderness behind it, and bushveld, and a great river in front? Men can cross rivers and travel through bushveld, he answered, and was silent. Up to this time we had seen no one, although it might have been presumed that a wagon trekking towards the house was a sufficiently unusual sight to have attracted attention. "'Where can they be?' I asked. "'Asleep, Baas, I think,' said Hans, and as a matter of fact he was right. The whole population of the place was indulging in a noonday siesta. At last we came so near to the house that I halted the wagon and descended from the driving-box in order to investigate. At this moment someone did appear, the sight of whom astonished me not a little, namely a very striking-looking young woman. She was tall, handsome, with large dark eyes, good features, a rather pale complexion, and I think the saddest face that I ever saw. Evidently she had heard the noise of the wagon, and had come out to see what caused it, for she had nothing on her head, which was covered with thick hair of a raven blackness. Catching sight of the great Umslopogas with his gleaming axe and of his savage-looking bodyguard, she uttered an exclamation, and not unnaturally turned to fly. "'It's all right,' I sang out emerging from behind the oxen, and in English, though before the words had left my lips, I reflected that there was not the slightest reason to suppose that she would understand them. Probably she was Dutch or Portuguese, although by some instinct I had addressed her in English. To my surprise she answered me in the same tongue, spoken, it is true, with a peculiar accent which I could not place, as it was neither Scotch nor Irish. "'Thank you,' she said. "'I, sir, was frightened. Your friends look—' Here she stumbled for a word, then added, terocious I laughed at this composite adjective, and answered, 
Well, so they are in a way, though they will not harm you or me. But, young lady, tell me, can we outspun here? Perhaps your husband? I have no husband. I have only a father, sir, and she sighed. Well, then, could I speak to your father? My name is Alan Quatermain, and I am making a journey of exploration to find out about the country beyond, you know. Yes, I will go to wake him. He's asleep. Everyone sleeps here at midday, except me, she said with another sigh. Why do you not follow their example? I asked jocosely, for this young woman puzzled me, and I wanted to find out about her. Because I sleep little, sir, who thinks too much. There will be plenty of time to sleep soon for all of us, will there not? I stared at her and inquired her name, because I did not know what else to say. My name is Enis Robertson, she answered. I will go to wake my father. Meanwhile, please unyoke your oxen. They can feed with the others. They look as though they wanted rest, poor things. Then she turned and went into the house. Enis Robertson, I said to myself. That's a queer combination, English father and Portuguese mother, I suppose. But what can an Englishman be doing in a place like this? If it had been a trek-boer, I should not have been surprised. Then I began to give directions about outspanning. We had just got the oxen out of the jokes when a big, raw-boned, red-bearded, blue-eyed, roughly-clad man about fifty years of age appeared from the house, yawning. I threw my eye over him as he advanced with a peculiar rolling gait and formed certain conclusions. A drunkard who has once been a gentleman, I reflected to myself, for there was something peculiarly dissolute in his appearance, also one who has had to do with the sea, a diagnosis which proved very accurate. "'How do you do, Mr. Alan Quartermain?' which I think my daughter said is your name, unless I dreamt it, for it is one that I seem to have heard before, he exclaimed with a broad Scotch accent, which I do not attempt to reproduce. What in the name of the blaze brings you here, where no real white man has been for years? Well, I am glad enough to see you anyway, for I am sick of half-breed. Portuguese and niggers and snuff and butter girls and gin and bad whisky. Leave your people to attend to those oxen and come in and have a drink. Thank you, Mr. Robertson. Captain Robertson, he interrupted. Man, don't look astonished. You mightn't guess it, but I commanded a mail steamer once and should like to hear myself called rightly again before I die. I beg your pardon, Captain Robertson. But myself, I don't drink anything before sundown. However, if you have something to eat... Oh, yes, Enes, she's my daughter, will find you a bite. Those men of yours... And he looked doubtfully at Umslopogas and his savage company. Will want food as well. I'll have a beast killed for them. They look as if they could eat it for horns and all. Where are my people? All asleep, I suppose, the lazy lovers. Wait a bit, I'll wake them up. Going to the house, he snatched a great shambok, cut from hippopotamus hide, from where it hung on a nail in the wall, 
and ran towards the group of huts which I have mentioned, roaring out the name Tomaso, also a string of oaths such as seamen used, mixed with others of a Portuguese variety. What happened there I could not see because bows were in the way, but presently I heard blows and screams, and caught sight of people, all dark-skinned, flying from the huts. A little later a fat half-bred man, I should say from his curling hair that his mother was a negress and his father a Portuguese, appeared with some other nondescript fellows, and began to give directions in competent fashion about our oxen, also as to the killing of a calf. He spoke in bastard Portuguese, which I could understand, and I heard him talk of Umslopogas, to whom he pointed as that nigger, after the fashion of such cross-bred people who choose to consider themselves white men. Also he made uncomplimentary remarks about Hans, who, of course, understood every word he said. Evidently Tomaso's temper had been ruffled by this sudden and violent disturbance of his nap. Just then our host appeared, puffing with his exertions, and declaring that he had stirred up the swine with a vengeance, in proof of which he pointed to the shambok that was reddened with blood. "'Captain Robertson,' I said, "'I wish to give you a hint to be passed on to Mr. Tomaso, if that is he. He spoke of the Sulu soldier there as a nigger, etc. Well, he is a chief of a high rank, and rather a terrible fellow if roused. Therefore I recommend Mr. Tomaso not to let him understand that he is insulting him. Oh, that's the way of these snuffin-butters, one whose grandmother once met a white man, replied the captain, laughing. But I'll tell him. And he did in Portuguese. His retainer listened in silence, looking at Umslopogas rather sulkily. Then we walked into the house. As we went, the captain said, Senor Tomaso, he calls himself Senor, is my manager here, and a clever man, honest too in his way and attached to me, perhaps because I saved his life once. But he has a nasty temper, as have all these cross-breeds, so I hope he won't get wrong with that native who carries a big axe. I hope so, too, for his own sake, I replied emphatically. The captain led the way into the sitting-room. There was but one in the house. It proved a queer kind of place, with rude furniture seated with strips of hide after the Boer fashion, and yet bearing a certain air of refinement, which was doubtless due to Enos, who, with the assistance of a stout native girl, was already engaged in setting the table. Thus there was a shelf with books. Shakespeare was one of these, I noticed, over which hung an ivory crucifix which suggested that Enos was a Catholic. On the walls, too, were some good portraits, and on the window ledge a jar full of flowers. Also the forks and spoons were of silver, as were the mugs, and engraved with a tremendous coat of arms and a Portuguese motto. Presently the food appeared, which was excellent and plentiful, and the captain, his daughter, and I sat down and ate. I noted that he drank gin and water, an innocent-looking beverage, but strong as he took it. It was offered to me, but like Miss Enos, I preferred coffee. During the meal and afterwards, while we smoked upon the veranda, 
I told them as much as I thought desirable of my plans. I said that I was engaged upon a journey of exploration of the country beyond the Zambesi, and that having heard of this settlement, which, by the way, was called Stratmuir, as I gathered after a place in faraway Scotland, where the captain had been born and passed his childhood. I had come here to inquire as to how to cross the great river, and about other things. The captain was interested, especially when I informed him that I was that same hunter Quatermain, of whom he had heard in past years. But he told me that it would be impossible to take the wagon down into the low bush veld, which we could see beneath us, as there all the oxen would die of the bite of the tsetse fly. I answered that I was aware of this, and proposed to try to make an arrangement to leave it in his charge till I returned. "'That might be managed, Mr. Quatermain,' he answered. "'But, man, will you ever return? They say there are queer folk living on the other side of the Sambesi. Savage men who are cannibals. Amahagar, I think they call them. It was they who in past years cleaned out all this country.' except for a few river tribes who live in floating huts or on islands among the reeds, and that's why it is so empty. But this happened long ago, much before my time, and I don't suppose they will ever cross the river again. If I might ask, what brought you here, Captain? I said, for the point was one on which I felt curious. That which brings most men to wild places, Mr. Quatermain, trouble if you want to know i had a misfortune and pile up my ship there was some lives lost and rightly or wrongly i got the sack then i started as a trader in a god-forsaken hole named chinde one of the sambesi mouths you know and it did very well as we scotsmen have a way of doing there i married a portuguese lady a real lady of high blood one of the old sort. When my girl Ines was about twelve years old, I got into more trouble, for my wife died, and it pleased a certain relative of hers to say that it was because I had neglected her. This ended in a row, and the truth is that I killed him. In fair fight, mind you, still kill him. I did, though I scarcely knew that I had done it at the time, after which the place grew too hot to hold me. So I sold up and swore that I would have no more to do with what they are pleased to call civilization on the East Coast. During my trading I had heard that there was a fine country up this way, and here I came and settled years ago, bringing my girl and Tommaso, who was one of my managers also a few other people with me, and here I have been ever since, doing very well as before, for I trade a lot of ivory and other things and grow stuff and cattle, which I sell to the river natives. Yes, I'm a rich man now, and could go to live on my means in Scotland, or anywhere. Why don't you? I asked. Oh, for many reasons. I've lost touch with all that, and become a half-wild, and I like this life, and the sunshine, and being me own master. Also, if I did, things might be raked up against me, about that man's death. Also, though I dare say it will make you think badly of me for it, Mr. Quatermain, I have ties down there, 
and he waved his hand towards the village, if so it could be called, which it wouldn't be easy for me to break. A man may be fond of his children, Mr. Quatermain, even if their skins ain't so white as they ought to be. Lastly, I have habits, you see. I'm speaking out to you as man to man, which might get me into trouble again if I went back to the world. And he nodded his fine, capable-looking head in the direction of the bottle on the table. I see, I said hastily, for this kind of confession bursting out of the man's lonely heart when what he had drunk took hold of him was painful to hear. But how about your daughter, Miss Enos? Ah, he said with a quiver in his voice, there you touch it. She ought to go away. There is no one for her to marry here, where we haven't seen a white man for years. And she's a lady right enough, like her mother. But who is she to go to, being a Roman Catholic, whom my own door Presbyterian folk in Scotland, if any of them are left, would turn their backs on? Moreover, she loves me in her own fashion, as I love her, and she wouldn't leave me because she thinks it's her duty to stay, and knows that if she did I should go to the devil altogether. Still, perhaps you might help me about her, Mr. Quatermain. That is, if you live to come back from your journey, he added doubtfully. I felt inclined to ask how I could possibly help in such a matter, but thought it wisest not to say nothing. This, however, he did not notice, for he went on. Now I think I will have a nap, as I do my work in the early morning and sometimes late at night when my brain seems to clear up again, for you see, I was a sailor for many years and accustomed to keeping watches. You look after yourself, won't you, and treat the place as your own. Then he vanished into the house to lie down. When I had finished my pipe, I went for a walk. First I visited the wagon, where I found Umslopogas and his company engaged in cooking the beast that had been given them, Zulu fashion. Hans, with his usual cunning, had already secured a meal, probably from the servants or from Ines herself. At least he left them and followed me. First we went down to the huts, where we saw a number of good-looking young women of mixed blood, all decently dressed and engaged about their household duties. Also we saw four or five boys and girls, to say nothing of a baby in arms, fine young people, one or two of whom were more white than coloured. "'Those children are very like the Baas, with the red beard,' remarked Hans reflectively. "'Yes,' I said, and shivered, for now I understood the awfulness of this poor man's case. He was the father of a number of half-breds who tied him to this spot as anchors tie a ship. I went on rather hastily past some sheds to a long, low building, which proved to be a store. Here the quarter-blood called Tommaso, and some assistants were engaged in trading with natives from the Sambesi swamps, men of a kind that I had never seen, but in a way more civilized than many further south. What they were selling or buying I did not stop to see, but I noticed that the store was full of goods, of one sort or another, including a great deal of ivory, 
which, as I supposed, had come down the river from inland. Then we walked on to the cultivated fields, where we saw corn growing very well, also tobacco and other crops. Beyond this were cattle kraals, and in the distance we perceived a great number of cattle and goats feeding on the slopes. "'This red-beard bass must be very rich in all things,' remarked the observant Hans, when we had completed our investigations. "'Yes,' I answered. "'Rich and yet poor.' "'How can a man be both rich and yet poor, Baas?' asked Hans. Just at that moment some of the half-bred children, whom I have mentioned, ran past us more naked than dressed, and whooping like little savages. Hans contemplated them gravely, then said, "'I think I understand now, Baas. A man may be rich in things he loves and yet does not want, which makes him poor in other ways.' yes i answered as you are hans when you take too much to drink just then we met the stately miss Enes returning from the store carrying some articles in a basket soap i think and tea in a packet amongst them i told hans to take the basket and bear it to the house for her he went off with it and walking slowly we fell into conversation your father must do very well here i said nodding at the store with a crowd of natives round it yes she answered he makes much money which he puts in a bank at the coast for living costs us nothing and there is great profit in what he buys and sells also in the crops he grows and in the cattle but she added pathetically what is the use of money in a place like this you can get things with it i answered vaguely that is what my father says but what does he get strong stuff to drink dresses for those women down there and sometimes pearls jewels and other things for me which i do not want i have a box full of them set in ugly gold or loose which i cannot use and if i put them on who is there to see them that clever half-breed tomaso for he is clever in his way faithful too all the women down there no one else you do not seem to be happy miss Inez. no i cannot tell how unhappy others are who have met none but sometimes i think that i must be the most miserable woman in the world oh no i replied cheerfully plenty are worse off then mr quatermain it must be because they cannot feel did you ever have a father whom you loved yes miss Inez. he is dead but he was a very good man a kind of saint ask my servant the little hottentot hans he will tell you about him ah a very good man well as you may have guessed mine is not though there is much good in him for he has a kind heart and a big brain but the drink and those women down there they ruin him and she wrung her hands why don't you go away i blurted out because it is my duty to stop that is what my religion teaches me although of it i know little except through books who have seen no priest for years except one who was a missionary a baptist i think who told me that my faith was false and would lead me to hell 
yes not understanding how i live he said that who did not know that hell is here no i cannot go who hopes always that still god and the saints will show me how to save my father even though it be with my blood and now i have said too much to you who are quite a stranger yet i do not know why i feel that you will not betray me and what is more that you will help me if you can since you are not one of those who drink or and she waved her hand towards the huts i have my faults miss Ines. i answered yes no doubt else you would be a saint not a man and even the saints had their faults or so i seem to remember and became saints by repentance and conquering them still i am sure that you will help me if you can then with a sudden flash of her dark eyes that said more than all her words she turned and left me here's a pretty kettle of fish thought i to myself as i strolled back to the wagon to see how things were going on there and how to get the live fish out of the kettle before they boil or spoil is more than i know i wonder why fate is always finding me such jobs to do even as i thought thus a voice in my heart seemed to echo that poor girl's words because it is your duty and to add others to them woe betide him who neglects his duty i was appointed to try to hook a fish out of the vast kettle of human woe and therefore i must go on hooking meanwhile this particular problem seemed beyond me perhaps fate would help i reflected as a matter of fact in the end fate did if fate is the right word to use in this connection end of chapter 5 of she and alan by h rider haggard read by lars rolander